to say good morning to you all. Welcome to the assembly of the saints that meet here at La Prada. Certainly glad to have you here this morning. I know we have a number of people who are ending their spring break or starting their spring break or on travel or, or, or out for whatever reason. Uh, we, we appreciate each and every one of you that is here. Especially appreciate any visitors that have chosen to visit with us today. We know there's a lot of places you could have been and you've chosen to be here and for that we are thankful. We hope that the assembly has been edifying to you so far and that it continues to be as we dive into God's word here in just a moment. This morning's message comes from the book of Hosea. We will look at the first three chapters of this book this morning, and we will seek principles that we can learn from that can help us be more faithful in our service to God. Now, the book of Hosea falls into the category of what we call the minor prophets. They're there at the far right-hand corner. The Minor Prophets consist of all those Old Testament books, beginning at Hosea, going all the way through the end of the Old Testament, ending at Malachi. The term Minor Prophets doesn't mean that this group of prophets is any less than the others, the B-team, less important, or the scrubs of the prophets. It only means that the things that they wrote was much shorter than that of who we consider the major prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The work of the minor prophets is just as important as the others, for they all spoke for God. Now, before jumping into our study in the book of Hosea, let's take just a moment to understand some of the background of this book, as it provides very useful context that will help us to understand the things that Hosea is speaking. The first verse of this book tells us that Hosea is the son of Beri. Now, not much is known about Hosea nor his father. God sent Hosea to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. So from that fact, we understand that he lived during the days when Israel was a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The first, book, first verse of the book also mentions the kings that reigned during the times of Hosea's prophecy. The names of these kings you see there on the slide help us to narrow down the time frame that Hosea prophesied, which is about... 40 years, 755 B.C. to around 710 B.C. So with that information, we can better understand the things that were going on in Israel at the time or during his lifetime. There was much prosperity and luxury in the land of Israel, but morality was at a low, and it was continually getting worse. With a series of evil kings who refused to do away with the idolatry in the land, Israel drifted further and further away from God. Calf worship, which was introduced by King Jeroboam when the kingdom split, and Baal worship were the two main forms of idolatry that existed in the land. Israel submitted herself to idolatry and all the evil that came with it. Baal, who was a fertility god, and worship of Baal involved temple prostitution. And that sort of immorality certainly took its toll in society. Israel was also allied with pagan nations as they disregarded their uh, God and their reliance on God for security and looked to pagan nations for support. All in all, it was just a bad time for Israel. The overall theme for this book and Hosea's message is God's loyal and faithful love for his people, despite her immoral behavior. 
We will read of the measures that God goes through to reach his people and to turn them to repentance. God will continually be faithful, blessing Israel, and Israel will seem so determined to run the other way. This morning we'll go to the text and we will seek to understand what Hosea's message meant to the original audience, and then we will make some application at the end, looking for principles that can help us today. So let's jump right in. Beginning here in verse 2, it says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So see here, God commanded the prophet Hosea to do something that we would consider unimaginable. God directed him to choose a wife of whoredom. Now this word whoredom means to commit fornication or to be a prostitute. So God told the prophet to go choose a wife who is a fornicator or a prostitute. And as we continue reading, we will understand that God told Hosea to do this for a reason. He was told to do this because the relationship that Hosea would have with his wife will serve as a visual lesson for Israel. God has tried to reach Israel for years and has sought to turn her from the idolatry that she has embraced, but she continues to reject God. So Hosea and his marriage relationship and the life that he lives before Israel will be put on full display with Hosea's wife playing the part of Israel, the adulteress, and Hosea playing the part of God. In God's command to Hosea, it is very unlikely that Hosea's wife was a prostitute when he first married her. The text may lead us to believe that, but I believe that since their relationship is supposed to be a picture or an analogy of Israel in God's relationship, we must consider that Israel was faithful and loyal to God for a period of time before turning to idolatry. So the analogy wouldn't fit if Hosea's wife was an adulterer at the beginning of the marriage. No, I believe that over time, this chaste and faithful wife of Hosea became an adulterous woman, just as Israel did. She participated in the idolatry of the day, the idolatry that was so prominent at the time, and she eventually fell into a life of prostitution. The Bible doesn't tell us how this downward spiral happened, but instead simply tells us that is who she became. So looking at this verse again, God is saying, go take a wife who will ultimately be unfaithful to you. Going to verse 3, it says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibbling, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea obeyed the command of God, and he married a woman named Gomer. And the Bible says that Gomer bore him a son, and God chose the name for the son. Names mean something, especially the names that are given in the Bible. We all understand that. Ask any new parents the effort and the time they spend thinking of the name they're going to name their child. Before my wife and I were even married, I already had the name picked out for my son. But that didn't work out. The name didn't get to get used. 
But that plan didn't work. But in Hosea's case, God chose the name for his child. God chose the name for his son. And that name would reflect God's plan for Israel. Jezreel is the name. And the name has two meanings. It says it means God sows, and it also means God scatters. And so God explains the reasoning for the name as he says here in verse 4. God plans to avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and he will bring an end to the kingdom of Israel. The explanation of this name requires that we look back in history to King Jehu. Jehu's life is a very interesting life, and it's worthy of its own lesson by itself. And you can find it in 2 Kings 9 and 10. But for the sake of time, I will briefly tell the history so that we can stay focused on Hosea this morning. Jezreel was a name of a city and a valley in Israel. In the valley of Jezreel, King Jehu's dynasty began as he slaughtered the king of Israel, the king of Judah, descendants of the king, and many others that followed Baal. And the Bible records that God had Jehu anointed for this very purpose, to put to death the descendants of King Ahab, who was a very evil king. Jehu was commended by God for his obedience. But the Bible reveals that Jehu went above and beyond, killing more than God told him to kill. And even, of course, that his motives, that motives weren't quite pure as he did it. So Jezreel, the name of Hosea's son, is God communicating that he is avenging the bloodshed of King Jehu and it is God announcing something even bigger. God announces that the kingdom of Israel will fall. In verse 5, he says, The bow of Israel will be broken, signifying he will break their military might, and he will not deliver them in their battles, as they will be overtaken by their enemies. If we continued reading at verse 6, we see that Gomer conceived again. A second child. It's your boy daughter. And God once again named this child, her name being Lo-Ruhamah, the name the guy gave, for he will no longer have mercy upon the house of Israel, but would utterly take them away. This name fits because Lo-Ruhamah means no mercy. So picking up at verse 8, it says, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Ami. For ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. So Gomer conceived and bore a third child, a son that God named Loami, which means not my people. The name, once again, fits God's purpose, for he says Israel, or he says of Israel, you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And it signifies that God has rejected Israel. Now, as I said before, Hosea is a visible picture of for the people of Israel, to see, for them to understand more about God. And as they see Hosea's adulterous wife with other men, and they hear the names of his children, Jezreel, God scatters, Lohama, no mercy, Loami, not my people, surely it causes them to question, Hosea, what are you doing? Why would you name your children that? Why have you not put away your wife? Israel must come to understand that these children's names reflect God's feelings 
for her and his plans for them. Israel is in a relationship with God. Using marriage as the example, Israel is the wife and God is the husband. But Israel is the unfaithful, adulterous wife. She has left God to chase after false gods and idols. God commanded Israel to have no other gods before him. But Israel has committed adultery as she worships calves and Baal. In addition to that, instead of relying on God for direction and protection, she has formed alliances with pagan nations that she had no business aligning with. Just as Hosea's wife was an adulterer in the marriage with Hosea, God charges Israel with being guilty of spiritual adultery. Despite all of this, God still loves Israel. And he holds out for them. He holds out hope for them to turn back. In verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, God speaks a prophecy of restoration, of how things will be in the future, in better days. And he repeats the promise that he made to Abraham way back in Genesis when he says, I will bless you and I will multiply your descendants, that they will be numerous like the sand on the seashore. And he says, the day will come when he will claim Israel as his own again instead of rejecting them. God says that Judah and Israel will be gathered as one and they will have one head and great will be that day. Yes, God still proclaims that there will be a day of restoration. Even though Israel has committed adultery and broken the relationship, God is ready and he is willing to restore her as his own wife. Moving on to chapter 2, God says to Hosea, Say ye unto your brethren Ami, and to your sisters Ruhamah, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. So here God tells Hosea to address the Israelites as Ami and Ruhama. It is not obvious to us because we don't know Hebrew, but the new names that God uses here are the reverse of the names that God gave to Hosea's children. He tells Hosea to address them as Ami. This parallels with his own child's name, Loami, meaning my, my people, and Ruhama, which means to show mercy, instead of Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. God says the faithful children of Israel should plead with their mother. They should plead with Israel. In order to experience the restoration that God speaks of, some things need to change. Some things need to go away. Some behavior needs to change because right now Israel is not my wife. And God says, I am not her husband. God hasn't gone anywhere. God hasn't moved. God hasn't changed. Israel is the one who has been unfaithful and chased after other gods. And God pleads through the faithful. Plead to your, brother, plead to your mother. Plead to her to come back. Put an end to what you're doing or else God is going to take measures to get your attention and bring about the repentance that is needed. In verse 3, God says he will strip her naked like she was on the day she was born. He will shame her with nakedness because she has unlawfully exposed herself to others in idolatry. 
This form of shame that God uses is strong. It is a strong rebuke, but it falls far short of the death penalty, which is the law that was called for when adultery was the case. God says he will cause Israel to be like a barren wilderness, and he will leave her to die thirst. The destruction that God is bringing through drought and famine and plague is fitting, especially since Baal was considered a fertility god, a god of fertility that caused the crops to grow. In this, Israel should see that Baal is powerless. In verse 5, God says he will have no compassion, he will have no mercy, because Israel has acted shamefully as she chased after her lovers who give her bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink. These lovers were the false gods she worshipped. But we could also include the pagan nations she was aligned with. Whatever the case, it has gotten so bad that Israel, as she looks at the blessings that God continues to bless her with, she gives credit to the false gods that she worships. She gives credit to Baal for the blessings that God gives her. Verse 6 says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall that she shall not find her path, and she shall follow, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. As God tries to get Israel's attention, he says he will hedge up her way. He will fence her in. He will block her way with thorns so that she cannot find her path to get back to her lovers. The thorns of the hedges will make life painful and difficult as Israel chases after those false gods. God said when she tries to follow them, she will not be able to catch up to them or reach them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. Yes, Israel did leave God to search for what she thought she wanted. But she will, be, she will be disappointed in all that she finds. She will find no satisfaction apart from God. And we learned the same lesson from Solomon as he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Satisfaction in life is only found with God. And as Israel finally tires of chasing after her lovers, verse 7 says that she will give up and she will return to her husband. For things were better with him. Life was better with him. Life was easier with him than they are now, for God will make things difficult. Like the prodigal son, she will come to her senses and she will come and turn back to God. You see, Israel never realized that it was God who blessed her. It was God who gave her all that she needed. It was God who blessed her crops. It was God who blessed her with protection. It was God who was with her in battle. She never realized that. Verse 8 says that she never realized that all these blessings of corn and wine and oil and silver and gold were all from God's hand. He's the one who gave her all these gifts, even while she was in the arms of her other lovers and worshiping those other idols and giving them credit for the blessings. But God says all of that is about to come to an end. Verse 9, it says, Therefore I will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. 
So God says, since Israel hasn't woken up to see her own sin, God's going to give her a wake-up call. As he removes his blessings, he's going to take away his corn, take away his wine, take away the wool, take away the flax, take away all those things that she cherishes, and they will be taken away in season. In this state of sin, God will not allow her to enjoy his blessings. <coughs> Instead, God will let her have what she thinks she wants. She thinks that she wants a life with this false god Baal and the calf worship and all that the idols will provide for her. In due time, she will see the emptiness that comes with what that is as God takes away all that he has given and none of those idols will be able to do a thing about it. God says he will put an end to all the festivals and the Sabbaths that Israel was commanded to celebrate and observe. He will no, they will no longer be able to celebrate and have close communion with God because of the hard times that she's about to experience. God will destroy all the vines and the fig trees that she foolishly claimed were the rewards from her worship of Baal. In verse 13 he says, I will remember those days that you burned incense to Balaam. And when you dressed up with earrings and jewels as you chased after those gods and forgot all about me. The blessings Israel had will be removed and she will be left with nothing. And all of this chastening that God is doing, we must recognize that he's doing it not to hurt Israel, but to open her eyes and to bring her back to repentance. Beginning at verse 14 and going to the end of the chapter, the tone of God's message changes as he outlines his plan to win Israel back. Despite all these bad things that we have read about Israel and her adultery, God still plans to win her back. It says here in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness to speak comfortably to her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence in the valley of Acre for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bailey. So after the chastening, God says, I will allure her, I will entice her to win her back. I will bring her back into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. He says he will give her vineyards. He will give her back those blessings that he took away. He said things will be like they used to be, like in the days of her youth when she first came out of Egypt from bondage. And that day, God says, you will call me Ishi. And no more will you call me Balai. Now, Ishi is a term of affection that means my husband, whereas Balai is a term that means my master. There will be love and affection in this relationship again. The relationship will be restored, and Israel will no longer speak of that false religion again. In the past, she acted like those false gods were her husband, but no more. In verse 17, God says, He will take the names of the false gods out of her mouth, never to be repeated again. The gods of idolatry are gone and forgotten, for they have proven themselves to be false, and God has proven himself to be true and faithful. Verse 18, it says, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, 
and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercy. So God said in that day, a new covenant will be made. The natural realm would no longer be hostile to Israel. But peace would abound. And there would be harmony. God will break the bow, he will break the sword, and there will be no use for weapons. Because God will make all to lie down safely. The people will depend on God and he will care for them. Even after the adultery, all the history, the bad history, God will commit to Israel forever to be righteous and just and steadfast and merciful and faithful. There will be an intimacy in this relationship that will last forever. God says he will restore the blessings that he took away. He says he will have mercy on her, that he, uh, even though they didn't deserve it. He says he will say to them who weren't my people that you are my people, and they shall say in return, you are my God. As chapter 2 closes, we recall from the scriptures that God chastens those that he loves. The punishment phase of chastening is not fun, nor is it enjoyable, but it is necessary. God details his plans to forgive, his plans to restore, and his plans to continue loving Israel as his own. No longer rejecting them, no longer having no mercy, but embracing them and loving them and having mercy on them as before. Getting into the third chapter, verse 1 says, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the God, love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So we pick up here with God speaking to Hosea, telling him to go, to go get his wife, and to love her again. Just as God has loved an adulterous people. By this statement, we understand that Hosea's wife has abandoned him. She's gone. But God tells him, go find her. Love her again. What would you do in this case? Imagine if you were Hosea. The woman or the man that you have married has been unfaithful. You have three children from the marriage relationship, but he or she has left you to chase after their lovers. Do you help pack their bags? You throw their stuff into the street? Burn it in a bonfire in the backyard? Are you looking to hire a divorce lawyer? That may be their natural, the natural reaction. The natural reaction is probably to say the relationship is over. Cut them loose. Because the relationship is dead and it cannot be revived. It can't be brought back. But God tells Hosea otherwise. Tells Hosea, go and love her again. He tells Hosea to do exactly what he is doing for Israel. Hosea's actions will symbolize God's willingness to take Israel back, even after all that she has done. So in obedience, Hosea finds his wife Gomer, and he purchases her back for 15 pieces of silver and one and a half omers of barley. 
So it appears that his wife in some way was caught up, caught up in some way that it was necessary for him to have to purchase her back. Now the details aren't given on where she was at, what she was caught up in, or who he had to purchase her from. So we won't waste time speculating on those details, but the point is he had to pay to get his own wife back. And upon bringing her home, he sets the terms or the ground rules for the relationship. There must be faithfulness going forward. He says, you will live with me for many days, and you will no longer play the harlot. He gave Gomer a type of probation period so that she could be tried and proven to be true again. She would not be with the other men, nor would she be with him, her own husband, for a set time. But she would be fully devoted to him, and he would be the same to her. Now, according to the old law, Gomer didn't deserve a second chance like this. Per the law, she deserved death. But God is leading Hosea to be that visible picture for Israel. He is leading Hosea to be full of grace instead of wrath. He is leading Israel to be willing to forgive and to restore rather than end the relationship. So in verse 4, God says the isolation period that Hosea sets for his wife is a picture of what Israel is going to go through. Because she will live many days in exile without a king, without a prince. She will have no ability to offer sacrifices to God, nor will she have any ability to practice the religion that she once did. In exile, she will be away from the land that she knows. She will be cut off from the religion that she has known. But this time of punishment will motivate Gomer. After this isolation ends, verse 5 is a prophecy. A beautiful prophecy that it says the children of Israel will return and they will seek the Lord their God and they will seek David their king and they will fear the Lord in the latter days. Now at the time of this writing, David was dead. So this return to seek the Lord that he speaks of and to seek David their king was obviously speaking of one of David's descendants. Now today we have the advantage of the New Testament. And we are able to look at it and know that Jesus Christ is of the tribe of Judah. And he was the descendant of David. And he was a spiritual king over Israel. Paul and Peter, both inspired of God, reference Hosea in their writings as they apply this prophecy we just read in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Hosea. And they apply it to both Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 9, 25 and 26, and in 1 Peter 2 and 10, both apostles use the same wording from Hosea's prophecy. In the New Covenant, the distinction between Jew and Gentile is gone. It's done away with as we are now one. And salvation is available to all who turn to Christ. So it is in Christ that we see the fulfillment of of this prophecy that is spoken of in Hosea. And that brings us to the close of this chapter. This was not an easy book to read or understand, and it was not an easy book to teach from. Matter of fact, this past Thursday, when I was continuing to work on the lesson, I had second thoughts about choosing it because of its difficulty. It's not an upbeat and cheery message, spiritual adultery. But here we are. 
So obviously I didn't quit because I believe the message is important. As we read this difficult account, we must ask ourselves, why? Why is this preserved for us to read today? Why? Obviously Romans 15 and 4 tells us that it was preserved for us to learn from. In Hosea, God teaches us of his everlasting love for his people. God put Hosea's life on display as an example for Israel to see and learn from. As the offended husband, Hosea would come to know and he would come to understand the heart of God. Hosea, in his service to God, would understand the pain of a broken relationship and he would communicate that with God's people. Israel would see herself in in Hosea's marriage. She would see her own sin in Gomer. She would see how Hosea treated Gomer, how he brought her back and continued to love her. And they would truly understand God's love. God had given Israel protection, love, provision, yet she still played the harlot and disregarded all that God gave her. But we read of God's persistence and his long-suffering, his patience, and continually providing a way for Israel to repent and come back home. As Christians, we can be encouraged by the prophecy spoken that was fulfilled in Christ. As Gentiles, we didn't have a relationship with God like the Jews did. We weren't God's people. But because of Christ, the wall between Jew and Gentile has been taken away. And as Galatians 3 and 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, 24-27 paints the picture of the church being the bride of Christ. And as the bride, our allegiance, our love is to Christ who gave himself for us. We submit to the will of the Father and we keep his commandments. And we are sanctified and we are cleansed that we might be presented without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. God gave his son on the cross to make all of that possible. And we rejoice and we commit or we should commit to being ever faithful and true to him. Now on the subject of spiritual adultery, the book of Hosea focuses, forces us to look at this subject as Israel chased after her lovers and relegated God to second place or beyond second place. Spiritual adultery is something we all can be guilty of. James 4 and 4 says, Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you think the scripture means nothing when it says the spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning? James said we are adulterers when we become friends with the world. For the world is hostile to the things of God. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? It is breaking your covenant with God and being devoted to. It is loving and cherishing the things of the world that are opposed to God. It is embracing the world's standards and the world's values that are under Satan's control and rejecting the standards and values of God. 
It is giving your time and your love and your resources to things that exclude God. James cautions us about having a life where we are friends with the world because we are then hostile to or in opposition to the things of God. It is clear from the text that we cannot be both. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. You have to choose one. 1 John 2 and 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Loving the world and the things of the world means the love of the Father is not in you. If you're a Christian and you're guilty of this, you're guilty of adultery, just like the people in Hosea's day. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Let us consider the church of Ephesus that John wrote to in the second chapter of the Revelation. Jesus said through John, I know your works, I know your perseverance, and I know how you cannot tolerate evil, evil men. I know that you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So far, everything sounds good. It sounds like a solid church. People are on point, faithful, strong, and committed. But then we get to verse 4. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He did not specifically say what they had turned to. But we understand that they had left or they turned from their first love, which is Christ. Yes, we read the positive things about them. They were busy in the church. They were clearly doing many good things that he commended them for, but they still fell short. The point here is God will be your first love or he will not be. He will not be relegated to anything beyond first in your life. He basically told him, you better straighten up or I'm removing the lampstand of the church. And seeing that the church in Ephesus does not remain today, we know what happened. One final example for our consideration is the rich young ruler that approached Jesus in Matthew 19. He came to Jesus and he asked, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? The young man said that he had kept the commandments since his youth. And so Jesus told him, this young rich man, Go, sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The Bible says that the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He treasured his wealth. He loved his wealth. So much so that he was unwilling to put God before his wealth. Don't think it can't happen to you. As 1 Corinthians 10 and 12 says, Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. Because spiritual adultery can happen to any one of us. 
May we examine ourselves and strive not to be entangled in such sin. And I hope that the reading from Hosea has caused you to see it plainly and clearly and the verses have encouraged you to reflect on your own life, to root it out if you are entangled in such a sin. As we come to a close, in today's message, Hosea helped us to understand the loving heart of God. John 3.16 tells us of the love that God demonstrated for all mankind when Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins so that we don't have to suffer God's wrath against sin. What more does God need to do to convince you of his love? What more does God need to say? If you aren't a Christian, we encourage you to respond to God by choosing, choosing to obey the gospel. By hearing this message and believing that Jesus is the Son of God, you can come forward to the front. You can choose to repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ. And we will baptize you today in the water for remission of sins. And we, as brothers and sisters, as you are added to the church, we will encourage you to be faithful unto death where you will receive a home in heaven. For those who are already Christians, perhaps you have gone astray. Perhaps you have become like Israel or Gomer and played the harlot. Perhaps you have become a friend of the world and willingly put other things before God. How long? How long will you continue in that way? We encourage you to come back, to turn back to God before it's too late. We encourage you also to come forward that we may pray for you and encourage you that you may be faithful in your relationship to God. If you have a desire to respond, now is your time to do it as we stand and sing the invitation song that has been selected. When we walk with the Lord in the way of his word, what a glory he